Well, we're in a new series. It's called Christ, His Promises and His Coming. And the goal of this is probably multifaceted, but two goals that stand out. The first is, in just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating the first advent or the first coming of Christ. His coming that we celebrate in Christmas that was constituted in his being Emmanuel, God made flesh. He dwelt among us. We got to enjoy the benefits of his ministry, the words of God, the ministry of Jesus in speaking the words of the Father to us and in seeing the nature of God reflected in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're preparing our hearts for Advent preparing our hearts for Christmas, as it were. But it's just kind of a a foreshadowing or a foretaste, a preview, as it were, to whet our our appetite for the second coming, the coming of Christ that we anticipate now as believers because of the first work of Jesus that is making ready for his second coming that we'll anticipate at some future day. And like Ananias and like, uh, not Sapphira, but Ananias, or Simeon, excuse me, and, um, and Anna, who were there in Acts chapter 2, there was, or Luke chapter 2, there was a preparation of heart. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were waiting for the hope of Jesus Christ to come. That same spirit, that same heart, is the heart that I'm praying that God helps us to have, helps me to have, as I anticipate the coming of Christ. And what will that do for those who are waiting, waiting for Christ? What sort of waiting should we have? Last week, we we started in, and we're beginning to look at the covenants of God, his promises that he made throughout the Old Testament. The goal of this is to help you see that the promises that God made to Adam and to Noah, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, are promises that remain intact. Promises that will be a glimmer, a shadow, a foretaste of this future coming, this future deliverer, this future salvation that is going to happen, this future promise that we can anticipate that shows up in some way in that promise and will be initiated through Christ, but fulfilled and completed when Christ comes again. We tried to illustrate that last week through roller coasters. You know, the, the train on the track goes clickety-clack up the first hill, and, and once it gets to that first hill, and, and all the cars go over that first hill, now all the energy that's been stored up in that car will drive that train through the rest of the track and will come to a completed end when it gets to its destination. In order to enjoy the benefits, the thrill of the ride, you have to be in the car. It won't do you any good to fall out of the car or not to ever make it to the car. And in some way, that's kind of what our story is today, the story of being in the ark, Noah and the ark, somehow being present in the ark, being in it and being preserved as a means of rescue and deliverance that God has for us. But maybe another illustration would be beneficial for us. Every time my family, when I was growing up, we would go to my grandma's house. She was the master baker. 
And every time we would, we, the, the door would open, there would be this aroma of f- fresh baked bread. Do we have any, any bakers baking bread out there this morning? Anyone who, who enjoys doing that? There's a process of, breaking, of, of baking bread. There are ingredients that, that need to get combined together. One of the most important ingredients is the yeast that has to get mixed in with the flour and the water and all the other ingredients that are, that are present there. And one of the reasons why I don't do a good job making bread is because I'm not patient in the process of waiting. Because once you put the yeast in the dough, now there's a waiting process. All that all those chemical reactions that are going to take place, all of those ingredients that are present, nothing more has to be added to the equation, but there has to be some waiting that takes place in order for that dough to rise, in order for that bread to be made. These two illustrations hopefully provide some picture of this already not yet that we've described. The already coming of Christ and all of the work that Christ did during his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of that work is guaranteeing this future result. It's going to happen. The completion of it hasn't yet taken place, but we're waiting for it, and it's going to happen because all the work has been done. It's been initiated in Christ. It will be fulfilled. That's what we're trying to talk about this morning. Last week, we, we began looking at this unfolding plan of God through creation, through his, uh, his master plan of salvation that he's working from beginning to end. And last week we saw Adam, who is this, this figurehead of all of humanity. And there were some things about Adam that we saw that were, that were problematic, his sin, and which led to death. Romans chapter 5 speaks about this. Do we have that passage? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. There was a massive problem. A problem that we inherited because of the sin nature of Adam. We inherited his characteristics. Not only his physical characteristics, but also his spiritual characteristics. That showed up through a sin nature. And that sin nature then perpetuated itself and spilled into all of his offspring. Those who would be descendants of Adam would also emulate his nature the nature of sin which would lead to death. But the master plan of salvation of God would remain intact from Adam until the coming of Jesus Christ. That all of the promises that God had made to Adam and Noah would be promises that he would keep and fulfill in the person of Jesus. The master plan of salvation was fixed because God was fixed. The master plan of God for salvation was secure because the nature of God was unchangeable. The Apostle Paul reflects on this truth in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, in verse 9, he says, 
This mystery of the gospel was hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so if you know who God is, then you would know that the plan of God for salvation would never change. If you knew who God was, then you would know that God would never fail. If you knew who God was, the one who who created everything, you, you would know that God would not allow Satan, his adversary, to have his way. And if you knew who God was, you would know that humanity could never disrupt, could never defile, could never get in the way of his master plan of salvation for the world. So if we knew who God was, we would know that the plan of salvation that had been fixed before eternity and set in the nature of God was a plan that would continue just as God intended. So as we look through these covenants, I want us to remember that that the promises of God are this unveiling unveiling, uh, glimpse of the work of God in redemption. The The promises that God has given to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David just lead us one step closer to understand the the unveiling of who God is and what God would do someday in Jesus Christ. And that those promises that he would make wouldn't be broken, wouldn't have to be adjusted, wouldn't be promises that he would have to say, I guess I didn't understand that one. I need to navigate my way into a new future. I need to accommodate my plan to respond to the, the, the problems that are now present. No, God knew his promise of salvation, his plan of salvation, and as we see his promises to Adam through the rest of the Old Testament, we'll see the unfolding plan and narrative of this redemption of God as he's working through his people to accomplish his purposes and and finally to bring his son Jesus Christ so this morning we we begin with this problem that we see in Adam this problem of sin that that led to point number one this need for rescue There, there was a need for rescue because we understand that that sin is an issue that needed to be confronted. Sin was an issue that needed to be judged. And from the time of Adam, we see through his descendants in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, we see this ongoing pattern of sin so that we finally come to Genesis chapter 6 and we begin to recognize how, how extensive and how broad and how, how egregious the pollution and corruption of humanity had become. Look with me at Genesis chapter 6 as we look at this problem together. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 begins to help us see the, the strength or the, the totality of this problem in corruption of humanity. Notice, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. There was a massive problem. This massive problem that infiltrated every thought and every intention of mankind so that there was no moment, there was no time at which the people living during Noah's day had any inkling of that which was godly 
that which was pure, that which was righteous. Moses, in in writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is is helping you understand the totality of the depravity that was existent during that day. Every thought of his heart was only evil continually. And because of this, there was not only a need for rescue, there there was an issue of sin that had to be resolved, that God had to address the problem of sin. And he had to address the problem of sin because he had made Adam a promise, remember? He had promised Adam and Eve in the garden. He said to them, you may eat of all the trees of the, that are in the midst of the garden, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on that day you eat, you will die. Sin demanded judgment. Sin demanded penalty. And the penalty for sin was death. And God had to resolve the sin problem, and there was only one way to resolve that sin problem and to do it faithfully to his covenant promises to to Adam and Eve, and we see the the results of that in the next couple of verses here. In verses 6 and 7, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the earth, Man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's answer to the sin problem was death. God's answer to the, the problem of sin and the depravity of mankind, the way it had found its way into every part of culture, it infiltrated them as a as a people. The answer that was just and right was an answer of judgment, an answer of death. But that raises another problem. While God would be faithful to resolve the issue of sin by bringing judgment, there was another problem that existed. It was the problem, God had to address the problem of death. Because as we find in Genesis chapter three, there were some promises that were made to Adam and Eve. And in this covenant promise that God had made to Adam and Eve, we find this in Genesis 3.15. God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There was a direct promise of God to Adam and Eve that they were going to have an offspring. They were going to have a future heir, uh, an heir that would bring this kind of judgment on Satan and would crush his head. Somebody coming from the loins of Adam and Eve. And so, in God punishing and wiping out, blotting out humanity, dealing with the problem of sin that existed in Genesis chapter 6, it raises another problem, right? It raises the problem of death because if God would be faithful to punish sin, then God would have to obliterate humanity and then he'd have to start over. But if he started over, he would violate the promise to Adam and Eve. So what is the solution? we begin to find the solution as we continue to move our way through Genesis chapter 6. We see that God resolves this problem in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor here is the word for grace. It's the word for God's kindness. It's the word for God's benevolence to his people. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah stood 
out from the rest of humanity as one uh, whom God had set his sights on and demonstrated or, or showed his, he was the object of affection to God. He was the one on, in all of humanity, the object of God's delight and affection and grace and favor. Why did Noah experience the grace and favor of God? Well, we see that in the next couple of, of verses. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? What do you see there in verse 9? He found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was righteous. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was blameless. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he walked with God. Now, as soon as we begin to say that and the words roll off our tongue, now we have a problem, right? <laughs> did, did, did Noah's righteousness and blamelessness merit the grace in favor of God? Or, or is there something else happening here? And in order to get the answer of that question, we have to go a little deeper into the Bible and see from Hebrews chapter 11, we see how righteousness comes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. In speaking of Noah... It says this, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's righteous. But why? Why was Noah righteous? Noah's righteous because he believed. Noah was righteous because he committed himself to faith in God. There was faith that, that, that writes itself over this verse. It was a, a faith that was present in Noah's life. But how did that faith come? Well, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But we also understand from Ephesians chapter 2 that for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Faith is a gift. Noah believed in God because Noah was given the gift of faith which led to righteousness. And as we're going to see in our passage this morning, it was really a, a foreshadowing of future righteousness that would be imputed or accredited to Noah's account because of this future Noah figure that we're going to see in just a, just a little bit. Noah's faith was representative of a, of a future faith in righteousness, a righteousness that he would inherit because of faith in Jesus Christ. Noah is this figure of faith, and it was faith that was the root, the root of his life that led to the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of obedience, the fruit of blamelessness, the fruit of walking with God. Faith is always the root, and obedience then becomes the fruit. So God deals with this problem of death by setting his affection on Noah and helping Noah in his faith to work out obedience. Noah, as we see through this passage, and as we see in the passages around, our, is a unique figure in the Old Testament. 
So oftentimes, uh, we understand and we get to know about the character of, a, of an individual from the Scripture by reading their story. But Noah is unique in that God adds editorial comments about Noah to draw our attention to him so that we can take notice. For example, we, we find here that Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. We, we find that he's righteous and blameless and walks with God. This is a, a unique pattern of Scripture. If you look on the other uh, page here, Genesis chapter 5, you'll notice in verse 28, another editorial comment. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief or rest from all of our work and from the painful toil of our hands. You see, Noah's name means rest. Lamech, in looking around and recognizing the trouble of the world and the environment that they were living in, is given this prophetic uh, utterance by God to speak over his son and to know that in some way God will bring rest and relief through this son, Noah. Noah, again, would be a representative of a future person who would give rest. And as you know, in Jesus says of himself in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, those who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I will give you rest. God gives rest through his son, Jesus Christ. In Noah, this figure who would represent rest would help us to help to picture the rest that was coming, the rest that would be finally illustrated in the person of Jesus Christ. So there was a need for rescue, a need for rescue because of the problem of sin and the problem of death. And as we turn the page back to 1 Peter chapter 3, we begin to see how this will all resolve itself in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In Christ we find the way of rescue. There's a need for rescue, but in Christ we find that there is a way. There's a path. And not the kind of path that, that Noah would, would bring that was limited it was limited to only his family. It was limited to only a certain period of time because Noah and his family eventually died. But God, through his son Jesus, will provide a different kind of rest, a different kind of rescue so that all who believe in Jesus can enjoy the rescue that Jesus will bring. And that rescue isn't limited in terms of time because those who are in Christ will enjoy the benefits of life with God that begins on the point, the moment of conversion and lasts until we go to see Jesus in heaven for eternity. There is a way of rescue that we see here. So Jesus addresses this problem of sin in verse 18. Notice it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Jesus dealt with the problem of sin, 
by being sinless, by being righteous, by being the perfect representation of God in bodily form to humanity who was living during that day. And for anyone who would come afterwards and look at Christ's life, they would see the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus who spoke the words of the Father, who emulated the life of the Father, who did the works of the Father, and who carried out the will of the Father on the cross. In every way, Jesus submitted himself to the will of God the Father and thus was righteous in the perfect emulation of all that God had called us to be and to do. Jesus addressed the problem of sin by being sinless, by being that righteous representative, that Noah-like figure that was truly righteous, truly blameless, and truly walked with God. And because of his righteousness, he was the object of God's affection. He was the he was the center of delight of God the Father. On three occasions, we find throughout the New Testament, we find this affirmation of God the Father, this public, verbal affirmation of God the Father on his son, Jesus Christ. Remember at his baptism, when God the Father says, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then at his transfiguration, while the, while the disciples were reflecting on this, this transfigured glory of Jesus that was showing up in front of them, the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And in the account of Luke, we find, This is my Son, my chosen one, the one on whom I delight, the center and object of my affection. Jesus was this Noah-like figure that captured the attention of the Father as his son and the only one who met the conditions that God had set forth. He was sinless. He was righteous. He met all of the standards that God had set for his people. But in his sinlessness we find that he addresses the problem of death in this next phrase. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus will address this problem of sin by dying. And on the surface, it doesn't look like a, a solution at all. How does one who helps to conquer sin step in the same path of humanity by dying? It looks like on the surface that he has succumbed to the very things that humanity has succumbed to because of death. That this dominion of sin and death, is it now resident in Jesus? Why did Jesus die? We find from 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Adam deserved to die because of his sin. Noah, however righteous and blameless he was, deserved to die because of his sin. 
Every one of us in this room, because of our sin, we deserve to die. Jesus is the only one in all of history who ever lived the righteous life that did not deserve death. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died because Jesus became sin in our place. Jesus died the death that you and I deserved. Jesus stood in the gaps. Jesus was the representative who replaced us in terms of paying this penalty that was demanded by God. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages or the penalty of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus became sin so that Jesus could die in our place and he could resolve this death problem by offering to us life that we're going to see here in just a moment. Jesus addresses the death problem by dying in our place. And we know that, that while he died in the flesh, it says he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison in verse 19, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now what, is, what in the world is going on here? Peter wants you to understand that while Jesus was, his body was in the grave, his spirit was alive and his spirit was pronouncing victory. This word here for proclaimed is the word keruso. It's the word for preach. It's the word for proclaim. It's the word to declare. And Jesus was declaring victory. Victory to, as we find here, spirits who were in prison because of their disobedience during the days of Noah. Peter will, will, will now drive our thinking back to this rescue operation that took place during the days of Noah. He wants us to understand the connection. The connection that had been uh, begun in Genesis chapter 6 as there is editorial comments about who Noah is so that we can think about and remember this work of rescue that now Peter will draw our attention to here in 1 Peter chapter 3. There is a rescue operation that God had in mind. This rescue operation that is much like that of Noah's day. An ark was prepared eight persons were brought safely through water. And then we come to verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What in the world is going on here? What kind of baptism is Peter referring to? This word for correspond that the ESV uses is the Greek word for antitype. And if you remember last week, we saw in uh, Romans chapter 5 that Adam was a type of a person that was to come. This headship issue would be resolved in Jesus Christ. And, and the scripture helps to point the direct connection between Adam and Jesus in that respect. Here again, we see this direct connection. A connection between the saving work of Noah and the ark and this present work of rescue that's happening in Jesus. By the way, it's really important for you to understand 
that drawing these kinds of types and anti-types, these kinds of analogies, it's important to allow the scripture to lead us in that kind of thinking and not find these symbols uh, on our own, but to allow the scripture to guide us in making these connections. And so Peter makes this connection for us very emphatically and specifically here in this passage. So what kind of baptism is he referring to? What is he talking about? Baptism. Do we need to get our theology right? What might help us as we think about baptism is by seeing how Peter describes this. He says, not the removal of uh, dirt from the body. This is not about an outward cleansing that happens in actual water. What this is, is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is now raised, and now Jesus' life will do for us what it did for Noah, that faith will produce obedience. Faith will produce a, a showing of works. There will be evidence that our faith is genuine. There will be this fruit that comes because of the root of faith. So why tie this story back to Noah? What does it have to do with baptism? Well, just like Noah and his family were in the ark, this word for baptism is the word to be in. It's the word to be immersed, to place into something. And so those who are placed into Christ, those who were placed into the boat, enjoy the rescue that God had to give. Romans chapter 6 gives, gives us a better answer for that, a fuller answer for that, when he says this. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus died was buried and rose again. And in this way, those who are in Christ, God looks on them as though they lived Christ's life, as though they died their own death. Because the sins of the world were placed on Jesus on the cross. He died for those sins. So if you're in Christ, you can enjoy the benefits of of life with God because of the work of Christ paying your death already on the cross. It, but it didn't just stop at death. There was a resurrection life that happened. And that resurrection life now should lead to newness of life in his people. Newness of life in how we respond to the world around us. Newness of life in how we respond to God and how we live and follow God's will. And finally, as we look at our passage this morning, we see that Jesus gives ultimate rescue. Jesus gives ultimate rescue. Verse 22 says, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. God is supreme. And there is coming a day when this supreme God will not only declare his victory over the spirits that were imprisoned during Noah's day, but when this sovereign Lord will come and pronounce victory over the world. He will do this in judgment. He will do this in fire. 
He will do this as a testimony to his righteousness to judge sin in a very public way. I think about this just in terms of of closing. The covenant that God had made with Noah, this everlasting covenant that he would never flood the earth again, he wrote that covenant in the sky, remember? He wrote that covenant in the sky with a rainbow. Isn't it interesting that God would do such a public display of a covenant so that all the world could see? And there are several things that we can, we can um, observe about the way God did this. First, we, we know that that promise is still intact because we still see the rainbow in the sky. As a matter of fact, there, there are a number of times where, where we run outside when, when it's raining because we, we want to see the rainbow, which is this sign of this everlasting uh, promise that God has made, this covenant promise that he's made to mankind. That promise has not been negated or erased because Christ has come and gone. The promise is still intact. We see it. We know it's still operational. But isn't it also interesting that God would give Noah this sign of this rainbow when everyone walking off the boat found favor with him, was considered righteous and blameless before him. Why would they need that sign of a promise that he wouldn't judge again unless their offspring down the road would experience the same kind of Genesis 6 kind of depravity that we're seeing that he saw back then and would wonder, God must judge the earth again. God must come and demonstrate his judgment and justice on the earth. He needs to destroy the world in the same way. He needs to deal with sin. And by the way, he will do that. He has promised to do that, but it's not going to happen through flooding anymore. It's going to happen as we see in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's going to happen through fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, I think it begins in verse 10. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are, are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting, there's our advent, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt away and and burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There will be a, a catastrophic judgment on the earth but not through water anymore. It will happen through fire. And just as, the, as, as Lamech had promised about Noah, that through Noah, the earth would be restored and people would enjoy again rest because of the floodwaters that came and washed and purified and renewed the earth, there will be another renewal we're looking forward to. This renewal that will happen through a new heavens and a new earth, a new rest that we get to enjoy. So what sort of people ought we to be while we wait? Well, it says those who live lives of godliness, those who live lives of holiness, those who live lives of expectant waiting. 
I'm reminded of the verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. It says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance, in rest, is your salvation. In quietness, in trust, is your strength. The rest that comes from God is a rest of waiting, a rest of believing, a rest of trusting. Instead of striving, a rest of allowing God to do his work in the various situations that you're, that you're uh, a part of. The, the conflicts that you face, the pressures that you feel, the, the tragedies that have come upon you, the, 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 the bad news that you get from various places, the, the, the things that break down, all of the, the ways that we can enjoy rest happen as we submit ourselves in trusting in God. Submit ourselves in believing that God will work as we've seen the testimony of his working through history. May we be awaiting people as we wait for the second coming of Jesus. God, we praise you this morning that you are this way of rescue. And thank you for the illustration that we have in Noah in the ark. God, I pray that you would help us to wait with expectancy, to wait in a way that demonstrates a confidence in your ability to accomplish your purposes, not striving, but waiting. May our lives demonstrate a faith of righteousness, a faith that leads to obedience. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you.